0: Hey, it's Stephen Henderson. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk about monuments, how we should be thinking about them, how we need to be reckoning with some monuments, and what we do with the ones that are complicated. Aaron Thompson, who is an art crime professor at the City University of New York and also the author of a book called Smashing Statues, The Rise and Fall of America's Public Monuments, she'll join to talk about this reckoning and how we ought to be thinking about monuments and statues. We'll also be joined by Jaman Jordan, who is the city of Detroit's official historian, founder of the Black Scroll Network History and Tours, and someone who was part of a monument dedication this week to civil rights activist Viola Liuzzo, a white woman from Detroit who was killed during the civil rights movement in 1965 in Alabama. Professor Thompson, welcome to Detroit Today. Lovely to be here. So I want to go back a long time, maybe to the beginning of this nation, and talk about how monuments were originally conceived. Where did this idea come from? What were they for? And what kinds of people were to be honored with these kinds of permanent installations?
1: Well, the question in America was really interesting. So I think the only time that Americans have had a public debate about monuments more frequently than we're having in these last couple of years was at the very beginning of our nation when we started to argue about, should we put up monuments to George Washington? Or would that be too much like saying the success of a nation depended on just this one guy? Should we inspire people to lead or should we inspire people to be like George Washington, which are related questions, but but pretty different, I think. Mm-hmm. And it really only squeaked by. That's why the um, Washington Monument in D.C. took so many decades after Washington died to build because we were just arguing about it in Congress, in in the streets for, for so long. So finally we adopted more of a traditional view of, of a monument is a portrait of someone living and you were supposed to look at that image and think, I wanna be like that guy. Uh, but I think today we're starting to question again, uh, can any one person really represent all of our aspirations for who we wanna be?
0: Hmm. So So I think there's a, a kind of duality to that question as well. Can one person represent who we want to be? Can one statue or monument represent what a person is or was? I mean they're they're tied up in in the question that we're asking, I think about monuments but they are different and I think we have to, to kind of uh, pursue the answers to them in, in really different ways. Exactly. So so I, I wanna talk about um, th- this moment where we are thinking about monuments and statues and rethinking them and start with the, the idea um, of the distinction uh, that you draw in your book between monuments and memorials I mean that's another uh, kind of layer of of all of this that that, that requires a, a more complicated set of thoughts and ideas uh, what's the difference in your view between monuments and memorials
1: I think what a memorial does is show us something we want never to happen again. It's a way of mourning. It's also a warning. Let's not do this. A monument is about the future. A lot of times we we look at these monuments and we think, oh, that's something from the past. But really what it is, it's a instruction manual, you might say, about how we want our children to grow up, how we want our nation to keep going. So if you look Across America today, the vast, vast majority of monuments are honoring white men, often upper class, usually upper class, a whole bunch of them owned people mm-hmm. um, or enslavers. And if you think of, in contrast to what we are hoping for the future of our nation, where there's more diversity and who holds power and wealth, it's just not really fitting this isn't what we want our future to be like anymore
0: um you talk about the history of a monument itself being important to consider when did monuments of these open white supremacists like confederates come into our public spaces and let's talk about the history of why that happened during really particular times in our history
1: yes so i think a lot of people assume that Confederate monuments went up right after the Civil War. Uh, But that's really not true. Uh, The first monuments went up in the later 19th century, and you can almost track it state by state. Monuments to Confederate soldiers, to Confederate generals, went up when the states had consolidated their Jim Crow laws, Mm -hmm. when they had successfully disfranchised Black voters. So I think of them now after writing this book as a a form of celebration of uh, white Southerners saying we've regained control of the South after these brief years of political equality. Uh, And then again, you see another period of, of the creation of new confederate celebration monuments in the 20th century during the civil rights era. They are signs of resistance to Brown v. Board. They're signs of pledges to not allow equality. So, for example, the world's largest Confederate monument, carved on the side of Stone Martin, Georgia, Mm -hmm. hundreds of feet long, uh, was only finished in 1972. Uh, and was purchased in the fifties by the state as a rallying point. The governor said, "For those who were resisting integration." Um,
0: I, I do want to want to talk about the difference between those kinds of monuments, intentionally erected to make a racist uh, or or even violent point. And the struggle, I guess, we have with other kinds of monuments, where uh, a statue is erected to commemorate somebody whose life is is more complicated, uh, who may have been involved in in things that that uh, that no one should be proud of and or could be proud of, but also did other things. I think there's a there's a, as I said in the open a difference in the way that we have to kind of think about these things. And in some ways, it's a lot easier to say these Confederate monuments don't have any place in public space, but other monuments are more difficult to decide what to do with uh, or whether to maintain at all.
1: What I think is the the key to this kind of decision Is looking at what the monument went up for, what it's been used for, what sort of behavior it encourages, and what it's doing now in the community. In some cases I really couldn't care less who exactly it is that's depicted, um, as long as the monument is being used to people in the community enjoy it, they profit from it. Um, Things like Stone Mountain are the focus of white supremacist gatherings today, Um, look at the statue of Robert E. Lee in Charlottesville, which kept encouraging uh, violence by white nationalists, that could have been a statue of Dumbo. And I still would have thought, no, that's not right (laughs) in the community. Um, But for example, on the other side, the Lincoln Memorial is extremely interesting. Um, That was put up in a time when, for example, the contribution of the United States colored troop soldiers, the black men who fought for the Union, was basically ignored. Uh, Lincoln was revered as the savior of, of people who couldn't fight for themselves. At the inauguration of the Lincoln Memorial, um, it was the audience was segregated. Black invitees had to sit in the back. Uh, But today, thanks to King, thanks to so many other protests and events around it, the monument is a sign of, of inspiration, I think. So you have to balance the whole history when you're considering what to do with a monument.
0: Yeah. I'm talking with Erin Thompson. Uh, she's an art crime professor at the City University of New York. She's also the author of Smashing Statues, The Rise and Fall of America's Public Monuments. Uh, we're talking about monuments, the meaning of the monuments that we erect to commemorate people, the statues that inhabit many of our public spaces, and the reconsideration of uh, these monuments that is going on right now in the context of inequality and uh, our wrestling with how to uh, reduce that inequality, how to stare it down in historical context and move in a different direction. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue this conversation with Aaron Thompson, and we'll get to your phone calls and your comments on social media. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. What do we do with complicated monuments representing complicated people in our public spaces? That's what we're talking about here on Detroit today. And our guest is Erin Thompson, an archive professor at the City University of New York. She's also the author of Smashing Statues, Rise and Fall. America's public monuments. A little later in the show, we're going to talk about a new monument that celebrates Viola Liuzzo, who was a uh, civil rights activist in the 1960s uh, from Detroit, killed in Alabama after the Selma to Montgomery march. Uh, there are many. Things in the city that have happened since her since her death to commemorate the work that she did, including this new monument. It's an example of the way that we try to remember some of these things. That we try to make sure that the right people are commemorated in our public spaces. Aaron, you have said in interviews that quote memory costs money. I think it's a really interesting phrase. um, Who makes money off the monuments that are created and erected around us? And why does that matter?
1: Well, I like to think of it in terms of who pays money to keep those monuments up. Mm -hmm. So monuments, once they're put into place, you have to maintain them. Um, You have to keep them clean. You have to repair holes. You have to paint on patina once in a while. Uh, And it can be very costly. Right now, for example, Georgia is debating whether or not to clean the world's largest Confederate monument, which right now is very difficult to see Hmm. uh, because it's all stained from rainwater runoff. But it would cost half a million dollars.
0: This is Stone Uh, Mountain, correct? Yes. Yes.
1: So, There was a a Smithsonian Magazine investigation showing something like $4 million in federal taxpayer money spent over the last decade in maintaining Confederate heritage sites. And this is at the same time when so many important sites of indigenous or African-American history are crumbling away for lack of funding. So there's really questions today about not just what the future should look like, but whose history are we remembering? Are we preserving?
0: Mm -hmm. And if we chose to not commemorate those things anymore, and again, we were talking earlier about the difference between pretty simple choices and more complicated ones, but let's say uh, short of getting rid of something – what are the ways that we might change the way that these things represent someone's life to be more, to be more appropriate? Um, Is there a proper way to add context, for instance, to a monument that, that talks about why uh, someone was more complicated than, than you might think, or, or in your, in your mind, is it, better just to erase these things and say these were mistakes and we don't need to to live with them anymore
1: well it's a very well it's an answer that i didn't want to hear when i started writing this book i thought let's just slap up some signage with some more information and we'll be done but then i started reading research by scholars who have really looked into what do people pay attention to. Uh, and these scholars found that that people, if they don't want to change their minds about someone who's honored in a monument, they will just totally ignore any signage presenting contradictory information. And it's not surprising, but it's just the, your brain works in different ways. You've got a big, huge, human-shaped statue. You pay attention to that with a different part of your brain than a small text with a couple of lines of information. Uh, what I realized as the Black Lives Matter protest went on is that, that what activists were doing there by adding messages to statues with paint, by projections, by putting other artworks in dialogue with them, that is the kind of change that really works to keep a statue in place. If you have an undeniable message of someone saying, no, 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 you need to think more than just what this monument wants you to think. But what's been really sad is that all of those interventions have, have really been cleaned up. If you drive down Monument Avenue in Richmond, Virginia, all that amazing artwork has been scrubbed off of the the monument spaces that remain and the monuments themselves were taken away. Um, So I I don't want to say erasure either, because I think that taking down a monument without addressing as a community the history that, that put it up, that's worse than just leaving it there mm-hmm. to be in honor. Uh, so I, I try to think about how can we deal with these, these monuments in a way that will allow us to keep having these conversations about what we want as a community. Uh, so one project that I've been following very eagerly mm-hmm. is the Jefferson School in Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, has taken custody of the Robert E. Lee statue from Charlottesville, the same statue that was the focal point of the deadly 2017 Unite the Right rally. Mm-hmm. And they are proposing to melt down that statue and commission an artist to make a new public monument that's new, more fitting for the city and, as a sign of the resistance to change in monuments and anything else, they have had to weather two lawsuits um seeking to prevent them from from doing so. Hmm. so. so as
0: as an academic, um you know, as somebody who is about, you know, preserving truth and lifting up truth, but but also, reflecting history i think in some way i wonder if you can talk more about your your acceptance of the idea of this kind of erasure um i mean what you're talking about in charlottesville is taking a monument that uh, that celebrated an insurrectionist uh, melting it down and making it into something else which of course, I think anyone who believes in in equality could support that idea, but at the same time, it is pretending in a way that the original statue never happened it's a It's a way of saying uh, this this is gone. this is just not part of our even memory anymore. Is there something that that as an academic uh, uh, presents that as a conflict for you? I, I, I'm I'm really curious about how you how you think that through.
1: Well, you might think so, but I am trained as my PhD in art history is in Greek and Roman art, mm-hmm. so. I sometimes joke that everything that I spent a decade studying (laughs) has been at some point (laughs) thrown away. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Wow. And so from my very long perspective, I I know that monument removal is as human as monument erection Mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the very first metal monument ever in the United States uh, was... Was only spent seven years standing in New York before we tore it down. Uh, it was a statue made of lead of King George. And as soon as the Declaration of Independence was read, uh, New Yorkers pulled it down, melted it into bullets, and then used those bullets against the King's army to fight for independence. So, you know, that what if that was our American tradition of monuments, of, of using <laughs> monuments to get to where we want? to go rather than say, oh, well, it's it's there on a pedestal, so therefore it has to stay forever.
0: Dragon Lady on Twitter says, I want to hope most Americans don't want monuments to overt white supremacists today, but I struggle with founding fathers who were also enslavers being, quote, canceled. The hypocrisy is obvious, but those men aren't celebrated for Owning Slaves. Uh, let's go to the phones and start with Melissa in Metro Detroit. Melissa, welcome to the show.
2: Uh, good morning, Stephen, and hello to your guest. So I was wondering, what about thinking through the lens of choosing people who have greatly contributed to or promoted or reflected democracy um, um, and the common good? Um, and then also um, a plaque, a big plaque, could even be put up with um, at the sites of controversial uh, monuments that ask the public to consider that question about said place they're standing.
1: Hmm.
0: Uh, I, I, like, I like your thinking, I think, Melissa. Um, Aaron, what's, what's the answer to her questions?
1: Oh, I wish I had the answer, but <laughs> <laughs> a, a piece of information I'll offer. Um, so an Australian scholar, Laura Jane Smith, spent a long time interviewing people who visited uh, Monticello, the plantation home of of Thomas Jefferson. Mm -hmm. And Monticello had just put in a new installation about some of the families that Jefferson enslaved, asking the question of of how can a man who wrote, All Men Are Created Equal, own over 600 people in his lifetime. Uh, And she interviewed people as they were coming out of their day at the at Monticello, and many of them said they just hadn't noticed this installation, which they had to walk through, or they turned the the questions around to praise Jefferson further. They said things like, this is my my favorite quote, that, that Jefferson really gave the slaves a chance, hmm. as <laughs> if that makes any sense. Right. So we don't like to change our minds about our heroes. It's a very human tendency. So it's it's really... Difficult to to turn that ship of honor around without a more radical change than just putting up a plaque. I think.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Melissa, really, really appreciate the call and the comments. Let's go next to Terry in Detroit. Terry, what's on your mind?
2: Good morning. What a great conversation. I just passed the statue of a. Polish general over on Michigan and third as I was in the car driving by mm-hmm. wondering why do we have this Polish general sitting here on the corner? Um, I wanted to say that I just don't see removing some of the statues of some of these dastardly people um, as erasure. Uh, you know, I just feel like the communities should have never asked their citizens to stare at a statue of Robert E. Lee. And I think that it had nefarious intent when they put it up. And so I don't think we're erasing him or erasing anything that he and his uh, uh, followers did when we take the statue down. I argue the statue should have never been put
0: up. Hmm. Uh, Terry, really appreciate the the call and the and the comments. That statue that uh, that you passed at Michigan and Third is uh, of Thaddeus Kosciusko. Uh, I've seen that. That statue, as well, many times passing it. He was a general. Uh, I'm not sure why that's still there either. Um, uh, you know, I mean, it's it's just kind of like wallpaper in some ways. Uh, it's always been there that 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 I can remember. Maybe we can kind of figure out what that's about. but but, Aaron, I'll give you a chance to answer uh, terry's Terry's comments about these monuments,
1: yeah, I think that's a really great point. you have to think about were the statues historical truth when they went up? So one slogan of the Jefferson School in Charlottesville, Virginia has been, we are the, or we stand with the 52%. Um, So they are pointing out with that slogan that at the end of the Civil War, when the Union troops came into Charlottesville, the majority of people living in the city, 52%, uh, had been enslaved. Uh, and so they, the majority of the city, welcomed the Union troops. They were happy. They won the war, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So by putting in a statue of Lee, and this particular statue didn't go in until 1924, um, they think it's a sort of historical lie to say that the the citizens of this city, the people who lived there, were always pro-Confederate.
0: Wow! Wow! Uh, again, three one three five seven seven. One zero one nine. Let's take Elizabeth in Rochester. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Hi,
2: Hi good morning. Hi. You know, I think we might we might all agree that the uh, Diego Rivera murals in our Detroit Institute of Art is a type of monument, even though it's 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 a mural
0: mm-hmm. um,
2: because and it celebrates industry and and strength, of course. But I as I recall. Uh, Diego Rivera also uh, built a, mur- a type of mural in uh, New York City mm-hmm. that I believe it was Henry Ford uh, demanded it be torn down because it was considered at that time to be uh, pro-communist and anti uh, and anti um, uh, anti industry um, at that time anti you know it was too pro-worker. So I wonder if there's any. Uh, institutional recollection about that situation and and the uh, uniqueness of tearing down something here yeah. that we consider it's, now to be such a, a wonderful wonderful story. Yeah,
0: no, you're 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 right about there being uh, a story in Detroit and a story in New York about uh, Diego Rivera and his murals or his frescoes. Uh, the one here. Uh, was commissioned by the Fords uh, to, to be drawn at the DIA. The one in New York was at Rockefeller Center in the RCA building, and um, uh, John Rockefeller, who had asked Diego Rivera to, to, to draw that, didn't like uh, the, the image of Lenin in particular that was at the center of that, of that mural, and so he had it destroyed which I guess in some ways was his right. It was his building. It was his wall, uh, and uh, Diego Rivera drew something he didn't want on it. But I, I think it is an interesting. It is an interesting data point in this conversation. This idea of how we decide what is acceptable and what's not, uh, and and the the destruction of of things that that have been created. Uh, to, to express an idea or commemorate something. Uh, Aaron, what's, what's your reaction?
1: Two reactions here. First, that, that Rivera mu- mural that was destroyed is, I think, his most famed one in the U.S. now, mm-hmm. precisely, well, at least outside of Detroit, uh, <laughs> precisely because of that story of destruction. So destruction of the physical thing isn't necessarily the end of the history of that object. And two, the Confederate monuments, many of the monuments we're talking about or debating are not masterpieces, I'm right. just going to say, <laughs> uh, especially a lot of the Confederate monuments were were mass produced. You know, they had a mold in the factory and they would stamp you out one if you wanted one for your community. So they would not be a great loss to the history of the world's artistic production, I think. Yeah,
0: yeah. Okay, uh, Aaron Thompson, it was really great to have you here for this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for such a good conversation.
0: Okay, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about monuments. We're going to talk about. A park that is named in honor of civil rights activist Viola Liuzzo, and a new monument that was dedicated this week to her there. Jamon Jordan is the city of Detroit's official historian. He will join us to talk about Liuzzo, about monuments, and of course, the history of our city. Stay where you are. We'll be right back with more Detroit today. We've been talking about the significance of monuments here on Detroit Today, and now we want to discuss a new monument that was unveiled just yesterday here in our city. Viola Liuzzo, a white 39-year-old nursing student at Wayne State, was killed in 1906 by Klan members after she marched in the Civil Rights Movement uh, in Alabama in the Selma to Montgomery march. She's been honored in a number of ways, and more recently, a monument of her and her friends unveiled at a park that bears her name. To discuss this latest memorial to Viola and her friend, Sarah Evans, we have Jamon Jordan here. He is the City of Detroit's official historian. He was at the unveiling yesterday.
3: He's also the founder of Black Scroll Network History and Tours. Jaman always great to have you here. Thanks for coming by. And great to be here with you, Stephen, and great to talk about Viola Liuzzo and a new monument that was placed at the, at the playground.
0: Yeah, yeah. So uh, tell us about this monument, uh, but also tell us a little more about Viola Liuzzo. She's someone we've talked about quite a bit here on the program. And one of the things that's been really interesting to me is the momentum that's kind of built over the last decade, really, mm-hmm. uh, to, try to, to try to lift her up a little more. Uh, tell us why she's so important.
3: Yeah, so Viola Lizo of course, um, was a housewife here in the city of Detroit, um, and she had five children, and um, and she had she was an activist, when even here in the city of Detroit. She was involved in local activism right here in the city of Detroit. Um, she just was opposed to injustice. She joined the NAACP, and of course, you probably are well aware, and I'm sure our audience is well aware, that in uh, 1965, there's a major movement of people involved in voting rights in Selma, Alabama. And there's a number of marches that are held, but on March 7th, 1965, is what is known as the Bloody Sunday March, when uh, hundreds of people attempt to cross Edmund Pettus Bridge and are attacked by sheriffs and and state police officers and Selma officers, Um, and a call goes out by the civil rights leaders, particularly Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his organization the Southern Christian Leadership Conference for people of goodwill to come down to Selma Alabama and help in this fight the struggle for voting rights um, and and he argues that it's everybody's fight and she agrees with that and so she she leaves Detroit um, and before she leaves she tells her husband she believes she's going to come back shortly after this march from Selma to Montgomery she'll be back shortly but she also tells her husband, that um, her friend, Sarah Evans, will help take care of the children while she's gone. Mm -hmm. And of course she doesn't think she's gonna be gone that long, but she goes down and she does join the march from Selma to Montgomery. And then after that march is over, and we know that Martin Luther King Jr. will give his speech, how long, not long, Mm -hmm. at the steps of the (laughs) um, um, Alabama Capitol. But after that march, she's she's transporting people from to and from the airport, the bus stations, um, in different places because everybody of course doesn't have a car and um, she's murdered by members of the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah, yeah. And what happens after that is a smear campaign led by um, J. Edgar Hoover to destroy her name and really help to try and destroy her family even. And so there's been a movement, in particularly in the city of Detroit, to restore her character and integrity that was besmirched by the director of the FBI. And one of the groups that has been involved in that is the Viola Liuzzo Playground Association. And they created this park in the northwest side of the city of Detroit near the Detroit-Oak Park border, mm-hmm. near Greenfield and 8 Mile. And there's a, a, a statue, a smaller statue, of Violet Luzzo herself that was placed in the park years ago. But this monument is not a statue of a person. It has depictions of Violet Luzzo and Sarah Evans who raised, helped raise her five children. And it tells the story. It tells what happened with her, what happened between her and her friend Sarah Evans, um, the people who were involved, particularly the Violet Luzzo Playground Association. That monument was unveiled um, yesterday at, Luzzo Playground, I mean, at the Vila Luzzo Playground, and um, of course, a, a, a number of people were there, but most important, we got to hear not only the story of Vila Luizzo, restored the, the fight, despite the fact that it was attacked by um, the FBI, but also the story of Sarah Evans, yeah. her good friend who helped raise her children.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things that's really interesting to me about this story is, I mean, we, we live in Detroit, mm-hmm. and of course, there were so many people who were who felt that call mm-hmm. to, to to help not just in Alabama but all across the South uh, in that push in 1965 for voting rights, uh, the push before that mm-hmm. for the Civil Rights Act. Mm-hmm. Uh, Detroit is is a really important pivot point, I That's think, right. in the in the Civil Rights Movement. Most of the people that we talk about and think about are African Americans. That That's makes right. sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, The idea of recognizing an ally this Mm -hmm. way, somebody who is not an African-American, but nonetheless felt compelled to uh, put her life in danger, which, you know, we've got to always remind people that's what everybody who was participating Mm -hmm. had decided to do. That's right. Uh, But to lift her up in this way, in this city, I think is, is,
3: is such a powerful statement. It is. It is and what it shows is is that number one what she said was that this is everybody's fight. She told her husband that this is everybody's fight and she needs to be a part of this. So that's very important. That statement, that whole idea, but the other idea is in lifting her up, what we're saying is that this is not the the fight for human rights is not a particular group of people's fight. It is everybody's fight. And one of the powerful things about that is when she saw what had happened with Bloody Sunday, that moved her. Um, And um, a number of people had already been killed. Jimmy Lee Jackson had already been killed. Um, James Reeb had already been killed when she goes down there. And then after she's killed, Jonathan Daniels will be killed Mm -hmm. in Selma, Alabama. Um, What this does is it mobilizes many white people of goodwill when they're seeing Number one, was happening to African-Americans, but even it's moving them because they're seeing a white housewife who goes down and fights for this human rights fight and then she is killed. One of the reasons why J. Edgar Hoover wanted to de- be- besmirch her, he didn't want white folks to join well, What other folks doing right. To feel sympathy for her. That's also one of the things that is happening in a number of states that are trying to block this kind of history to be taught. Part of the reason they want many people on the right wing don't want this history to be taught because they don't want white folks to join the fight for equality, justice, humanity, oppose police brutality, support civil rights, support voting rights. They don't want to support the LGBT community. They want everybody to be on their side and they see that if people tell these stories, like Viola Luzo's story or Jonathan Daniels' story or James Reeves' story or Shaney Goodman and Schwerner's story, if, if people hear these stories, they may be they may feel like, you know what? This is our fight, too. This isn't just an African-American fight. This is everybody's fight, and they don't want that to happen. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, Jamon, so uh, yesterday was about erecting a monument to somebody who— deserves more recognition Mm -hmm. than than she has gotten a lot of your work is also about trying to figure out what to do (laughs) with the many things that we have in our city that celebrate people who whose lives were different and and, and whose legacies are much more more complicated i want to give you a chance to talk about how that contrast is important
3: yeah, it is. So um, I was listening, of course, to your earlier guest, and um, a lot of what she's saying is really what we ought to be thinking about. Um, we ought to be thinking of these monuments. They're they're more complex than just one answer, mm-hmm. and we probably have to take them one by one. Some, In some cases, these people contributed something to history, even though they may have been slave owners or um, people who believed in um, removing indigenous people. So in some cases they need to be moved, maybe to a museum or to a place where we can talk more deeply about their history rather than just being honored in downtown Detroit or somewhere or at a park. In other cases, maybe a a a, a, a another part need to needs to be added to the monument where it tells part of that story. And then, of course, in some cases they just need to be removed mm. or destroyed. Um, so. We need to look at these things, and, and I heard earlier a question about um, the Kosciuszko Monument, mm-hmm. and of course it was given, it was a, it was, um, a gift to the city of Detroit in mm. 1976 by Poland, and one of the reasons is it mm. was gifted to the city of Detroit was uh, uh, the, the bicentennial, America's bicentennial, but the other reason is, of course, Polish folks were involved in the American Revolution, Casimir um, Pulaski, Tadeusz Kosciuszko mm-hmm. um, and Detroit in the Detroit area was home to many Polish immigrants sure. so it was a way to honor that history as well and Kosciuszko was very important because he leaves a po- his estate in his will for his estate to be sold and the proceeds to be given to Thomas Jefferson to free the enslaved people mm-hmm. on Jefferson's plantation because He's a friend of Jefferson. He thinks Jefferson's main fault is that he's a slave owner. Hmm. Jefferson does not follow that will. <laughs> he doesn't He, do he, it, he refuses. He,
0: I, and, <laughs> and look, I mean, I, I consider myself uh, an educated person and, and, you know, I do a lot of reading. I did not know that yeah, So about that is Kosciuszko. I've <laughs> yes. passed that statue most days of my life. So, yeah, so we
3: do have this complex mm-hmm. issue. We have slave owners. Um, monuments in the city of Detroit. We have people who were involved in the Indian Removal Act or the Trail of Tears who are honored here in the city of Detroit. We have schools and streets named after people who were involved in this, of course, brutal history. Mm-hmm. And so we ought to be thinking about that. And there ought to be a way that we can address these things that maybe 50 years ago weren't an issue, but now that we know more and we've read more, and we understand more than what we understood before. We ought to be revisiting these. Well,
0: and and really, the, the the first step is having the conversation. That's right, and that's, that's the hard part. That in is in some of these cases. I'm going to bring up again, <laughs> Cast Tech. I that's know right. I see you all the time <laughs> yes. poking at the the <laughs> graduates of mm-hmm. that school, saying you gotta at least talk about it. That's and, right. And look, I've, I'm now the, the parent of a graduate of mm-hmm. Cast Tech, I'm the son of a graduate of Castech. Tech. I'm the husband I'm, of right? a graduate. <laughs> we all have some connection to that right. school. We're not saying that you have to just tear down mm-hmm. what is there mm-hmm. in terms of the
3: legacy. Let's have a conversation about That's it. That's right, though. we need to. You can't squash it. That's what Florida is doing right now, and Texas and a number of other states want to do is squash the discussion. And we can't be that way here in the city of Detroit. We have to be willing to address even the things that are difficult um, for us. It, and I, if, if, if history is anything, it is difficult. If it makes you proud, that's good. If it makes you happy, that's good. But if it doesn't ever make you uncomfortable, then it's not really history. History is going to make you uncomfortable and the discussions about it and these historical figures and events and places ought to make you uncomfortable, at least sometimes. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, I want to quickly go to the phones here. Uh, Heidi in Northville, we've only got a minute left, but but I know you have a connection uh, to the Viola Leuzo, uh Park. Uh, so so Heidi, go ahead.
2: Hi, Stephen. Hi. Um, I'm a member of the Viola Liuzzo Park uh, Association, and I was on the monument committee uh, that put up the monument yesterday. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was there to hear Mr. Jordan speak. I think he did a great job uh, talking not only about Viola Lizo and the impact she had, but her relationship with her dear friend, um, Sarah Evans, who uh, helped raise her children mm-hmm. after Viola's murder. Um, and i uh, just like to say I, I really uh, appreciate uh, the amount of people that were there. Uh, there are a lot of people who, uh, like Viola, want to see change and they want to see um things get better for all people we are aware of racism and and uh we want to do our part and by being part of this committee uh being part of this park association we want to continue the legacy of people like viola liuzzo and Sarah Evans, and it's it's not always the famous people that we think of that are out right, there right. Uh, marching for freedom.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Heidi, really appreciate the, the, the call, and of course, appreciate... Uh, your involvement and your support for for celebrating this uh, civil rights activist okay jamon jordan always great to have you here and look i learned something on the show today about thaddeus Kosciuszko. that's that is proof of why we need a city of detroit historian well, yes. you're probably thank one you. of the few people who can like make sure we all know what our history looks like here in detroit thanks for
3: coming by though thank you so much yeah.
0: That's it for the Detroit Today podcast. You like this show. You get a lot out of it. You ought to be sharing it. Share it with your friends and your neighbors, your relative, anyone you think would enjoy it and would add to this community that we're building here. Detroit Today is produced by Sam Corey and Nick Austin. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethin. Our podcast is edited by Jack Philbrot. Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. We'll see you next time on the Detroit Today podcast.